You are listening to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour, a podcast released on the first three Wednesdays of the month. Family crisis, relationship crisis, addiction crisis, no two crisis situations are the same. They vary by family, individual, and relationship. They can encompass complex family dynamics, emotional distress, anger issues, and entitlements, and often involve substance abuse. This podcast addresses these issues and others surrounding the addiction epidemic currently plaguing this country and the world. There is hope and help. Are you stuck, scared, or unsure of what to do next? If a situation with a loved one, spouse, or even a child has started to spiral, possibly becoming dangerous or threatening, it's time to seek help. My name is Scott H. Silverman. I help families navigate crisis situations. I'm the person you turn to in order to get you and your loved ones unstuck. Hi, welcome to the show. My name is Michael Glenn Moore. I am a podcaster with a podcast title in a city like yours. I met Scott when he was a guest on my show back in September 2019 and found him very, very interesting. And we decided to start a podcast of our own called Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. So that's what you're listening to now. And Scott, why don't you say a little bit about yourself, your history, and uh, bring us up to date. Michael, thank you. And for those listening, we really appreciate you turning, tuning in and, and listening to what we have to say. And we hope that you'll feed us things that you want us to have to say. How does that sound? Anyway, and it's a great, uh, great opportunity to be here and to talk a little bit about my story on our kickoff uh, inaugural segment, if you will. Uh, again, Scott H. Silverman, I grew up here in San Diego, California. And I'm still in San Diego, California, which tells you how much I feel about our community. And I'm married to a, a lovely woman, Michelle, who I've been with for nearly 38 years and two lovely daughters. I won't give their age because if they hear this, they'll get upset. So back to me, the, the history of what I bring, if you will, to why we're doing this is I was an individual, grew up in a family with four kids, uh, relatively, um, you know, a middle class, upper middle class family, had a work ethic, was very busy with finding ways to, you know, learn the, the skills of being a good hard worker, went to school. And then I had my own issues kind of fast forwarding to in crashed and burned around uh, substance abuse. Started when I was in my teens with alcohol, went into my later teens, got involved with methamphetamine and cocaine. So, I, you know, I, I can go into detail one day, but I don't think it's necessary now, but I just, I want to bring that to the table to also mention that, you know, one of the skills I had during those days was I was a, uh, I'm, I'm a formerly retired, unlicensed pharmacist. And I, I bring that up because I want, I want our listeners to know that I have a lot of experience from a variety of different aspects in my past. And I'm also a guy who just celebrated a little over 34, 35 years, actually, this past November, 2019. Uh, of continuous sobriety. So I've had a real long journey in the recovery uh, field, real long journey in the experience of substance abuse and self-medicating. And I was a guy that, you know, at age 30, tried to take my own life. So those are kind of my credentials. You know, those are the things I have on my resume uh, around, you know, the expertise that I have. I'm a subject matter expert here in our community. And what that means is when anything topical comes up, whether it be fentanyl, methamphetamine, vaping, you know, uh, prescription medication abuse, opioid overdosing, counterfeit medication, uh, things that kids are using today, what's impacting families in a negative way, what's out there that's on the streets. And, you know, I, I try to be somebody who helps uh, reduce the stigma around substance abuse and addiction. And I also run an outpatient program here in San Diego called Confidential Recovery. So, I hope over our journey with the concept of, you know, happy hour, it's kind of a spin on the concept because one of my biggest I'd, uh, drinking times was happy hour. I liked happy hour because it was a time you could actually uh, decompress from the end of your day and kind of self-medicate getting ready to go to the evening part of your afternoon or your rest of your day. And I liked the idea and, and the concept and threw it at Michael and he said, let's see what we can do to get the word out. So part of the mission, if you will, of our show, working together to help, you know, increase the education and prevention out there is Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. 
And the idea is to discuss things during our period of time that are topical and that are important to our listeners. So if you've got some ideas and you've got some suggestions, I want you to reach out to me. A couple of different ways to do it. Scott H. Silverman, you can Google me. You can go right to my website, uh, yourcrisiscoach.com, yourcrisiscoach.com. Or my email address is scott at yourcrisiscoach.com. And my phone number is, not many people give theirs out, but I do because I like the idea of getting a phone call that says unknown or is an unfamiliar caller or has no ID to it, you know, obviously other than a sales call, but it's usually a family in trouble and they want some help. So that phone number is 619-993-2738. Let me give it again. 619-993-2738. So you got my email, you got my website, you can find me on Facebook, you can find me on LinkedIn, you can find me on Instagram. But what's important is I really want to encourage you to find me. Let's talk about what's going on. And if you've got the problem, let's discuss it. And if you're a family member or a colleague or a cohort or a sister or a brother or a neighbor, call me. We'll talk about it. And the idea is once we start to talk about it, the idea of what options and opportunities look like are out there. Because there is hope and there is help. And Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour is going to be a big, big we believe, influence on how you access help, how you ask for help, and more importantly, when, why, and how to move that loved one of yours into the highest and best level of care so we cannot go to any more funerals together. Mike, back to you. What does um, crisis coach mean? What does that entail? After someone uh, reaches, reaches out to you, where do they go next with you? Well, you know, the, the, the term coach, I think everyone's familiar with. So let's, let's start with something basic uh, as coach. What does a coach do? A coach basically facilitates a team, oversees the training, works with individuals, help them improve their skills, answers questions, functions as a mentor, sometimes as a parent, sometimes as a colleague, sometimes as, you know, the kind of confidant that one might need when they're having issues around a specific subject. Crisis coach is just what it sounds like. When someone's in a crisis, and they need a crisis coach, that's exactly what I try to help perform the support that they need. And I say perform because sometimes we have to go outside of our comfort zones. And I think of people, you know, flying on a trapeze. When they're on a trapeze, they're outside their comfort zone, even though they're well-trained. And I'm not a clinician, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I approach this more from an anecdotal life experience perspective. My 35-plus years of recovery working in the field now for nearly seven years in the uh, substance abuse treatment world, and also working as a volunteer and a support person for families for decades. And through my experience, I've learned that there are certain things that if done in a certain way with the right kind of love, care, and concern, you can help steer, steward, motivate, or help an individual move into the direction of getting the highest and best level of care. And sometimes we don't know what that is. And that's where a crisis coach can come in when somebody calls me and says, oh, my son won't leave his room. Well, you know, could be he's suffering from some mental health issues. He might be depressed. Maybe he had a breakup with a significant other. Uh, maybe he's failing in school and doesn't know what to do to fix it. So before we make assumptions, the idea is to ask some key questions. But we do it out of love. We do it out of care and concern, you know, and sometimes we do it with tough love. And I almost always get kicked around when I use that word tough love, but I'll give you my definition of tough love. And that is being honest with somebody in a nice, caring, loving way. And some people call that tough love. Tough love isn't picking up a stick and beating someone over the head. Tough love is just simply knowing when to listen sometimes, knowing when to speak. You know, we have two ears and one mouth, and I always encourage families to listen, listen, listen. And, and clearly, you know, if we have a medical emergency and something's going on, you need to call 911. You need to get your loved one the highest and best medical support immediately. So this isn't something we talk about in a, in when someone's physically or medically in a crisis. We're talking about the holistic behavioral health, the gut health part of a crisis situation. And again, I'm also available to talk about what happens before it's actually gone too far. And that's really what I really suggest people make a phone call is when you see personality change or behavioral change or sleep pattern changes or attitude changes or grade changes or job changes or relationship changes or something catastrophic has just happened to someone you care about. They might need some support. So the question is, how do we get them to the right level of support to help them? Uh, we had 
discussed before the show some possible topics to discuss. Um, and one of them was the dark web. And I'm particularly interested in that because it's so accessible to young people and well, it really everybody, uh, as long as you have a way to have Bitcoin or uh, 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 money transactions such as that, you could um, purchase illegal drugs off the internet. Scott, what is that all about? Well, the dark web, it's a great question, Duma. And I'll tell you something interesting. A lot of people don't know about it. Young people know a lot about it because they've, they've kind of experimented. And the dark web, basically, if you think about it, you know, the internet, it's global, it's international, it's everywhere. And there's usually an IP address where, you know, you click on some sort of a, a website or some sort of a, you know, mechanism where someone's, you know, asking you a question, are you interested? And you click on it, your IP address can be monitored and they'll track it back and they'll start sending you ads or information. YouTube does it, Facebook does it, you know, most of the social media big uh, platforms do the same thing. What's interesting about the dark web is you can go into the dark web and there's no way to trace that you're actually in the dark web or you're maneuvering around the dark web. So the dark web has become an internet, and I'm kind of paraphrasing this now, I'm not an expert on it. The idea though is what happens is people will go online in the dark web and they will search for something that they're looking for and they'll get all kinds of different portals that they can move into that are not traceable, that are not tracked or can't be tracked. They're basically invisible to the traditional internet accessibility. And this is being done through servers around the globe where people are bouncing from server to server, whatever expertise they might have technologically that allows them to kind of stay hidden. So when you're on the dark web and you want to purchase something that isn't legal, not only can you do it illegally and get it shipped to your home, but when you pay for it, a Bitcoin is one example I think you used, Michael, but the idea is as of four months ago, there was a thousand different types of I call it electronic money where you can actually go on the dark web you purchase the appropriate electronic coinage, if you will, or, or paper, dollar amount, and then you make purchases. So there's no tracing the paper. It's not like a bank account with a bank account number and a routing number. It's not like a Visa card or a MasterCard where you've got an account number, an expiration date, and you're getting approval for it. You can actually go buy the money illegally, if you will, and some legally, and you use that monetary uh, application to purchase something off the dark web. And most of these companies who are out of the US, they don't have any assurance issues. They don't have to apply for in licensing. They don't have to be accredited by any gubernatorial oversight. So they're basically standing alone in some third world country or somewhere around the international globe. And they're able to do things that don't have the same regulations that we have in this country they mail them to your home. So technically you can be buying fentanyl, counterfeit medication, THC, marijuana, methamphetamine, cocaine, you name it, whatever is manufactured out there in the world, you can get it on the dark web. And I'm assuming that applies to other things as well, rather than give you a list, if you hadn't thought about it, you use your imagination. And the dark web, if you have access to the internet, uh, anyone basically can get on the you know, online and find the dark web. And there are a lot of companies out there that are marketing to your, you know, desired interest or level of uh, product that you're seeking. And they're going to find ways to become your best new friend if they can. And again, they ship it right to your house. It comes international mail, maybe goes to a staging area in our country. And then from there, it gets mailed to you directly through the USPS. That's how simple it is right now. And also, that's how scary it is right now. Wow, that is scary. Um, how can you trace it if you're a parent and you sus suspect your child is purchasing medications uh, through the dark web? Is there a way that they can find out without having to, I don't know, take the laptop away or take the phone? Is there some type of sign you think maybe that could flag them that their child is buying illegal drugs over line, on the line? The the way it's the way that's a great question because it's there's no easy answer and I hesitated for a second there because I'm trying to think I don't and that's unless you have access to their computer or you have access to their phone or you have access to their mechanism getting onto the internet the odds are you're not going to be able to trace it back meaning a lot of kids most of us have passwords to get access to our phone so if you don't have someone's password and you don't know how to get access to their phone or whatever iPad or whatever they're using to get on the internet, the odds are you'll never know it. Now, an easier way 
would be, you know, obviously if something's being, you know, sent to the mail and it's coming to your home, you know, if you're getting the mail before your, you know, your child is, then you have a chance of potentially intercepting it at that level, but the odds are pretty remote. So again, if your child's exhibiting behavioral changes that appear to be different and you think it might be substance abuse, drug related, alcohol related, prescription medication, or whatever that it might be, you know, sometimes it's, it's, that's where the crisis coach comes in to sit down and try to find the best questions to ask and potentially even engage me to be the third party that helps you mediate that. Family navigator is a term I really like a lot, Michael, where I'm help, actually helping the family navigate what next steps might look like. Because when you're talking to a 17-year-old and you're asking them direct questions, the odds are if their lips are moving, you're probably not going to get the truth. That's, that's so true. And I've heard that before, that teenagers are notorious for lying. And when I was a kid, I did the same thing, uh, lying that is. But, uh, you know, the dark web wasn't around when I was a kid. I was, that was back in the 60s and 70s. So this is something that's, that's relatively new, actually. It, it, uh, I know that the browser you use was developed by uh, the government. It's called the Tor Browser, which stands for the Onion Browser or un the Onion Router. Uh, and that's the browser that you know, normally is used to enter the dark web because you can't be traced, like you said earlier, you can't be traced uh, back to you if you use the Tor Browser. I have no idea once you get the Tor browser, what, what happens next, how you access the drugs, but apparently it's, it's really, really, really easy to do. do you well, all, the, uh, all the manufacturers and distributors who are working on the dark web, who see the dark web as their main, you know, virtual storefront, you know, they're, they're well hidden and embedded behind, uh, you know, uh, screens as well, meaning that their IP address, unless they're just really goofy and, and, you know, blatantly out there and never make changes, eventually they're going to get caught. And, you know, and right now, thank God, you know, internationally, you know, between the FBI and the U.S. Postal Inspectors and the DEA, I believe they're, they're making some headway. But the problem is you can change that, you know, mechanism so quickly virtually that it, it, once they find you, if you're moving around, they've got to start over again to, to do the backtracing and the verification. And then, of course, you know, any country that requires some sort of a search warrant, all of that stuff takes time. And, you know, if you're, and if you're very sophisticated, and some of these distributors are, they're moving around. They're virtual. They're a moving target. So they don't have the same. They don't have a P.O. box. They don't have a street address. They don't have a location that you can walk into because they're moving around virtually through their servers. And uh, the mechanism you just described is a way that they can hide behind it. And, you know, technology is only getting better and more sophisticated. And if they have found ways to kind of, you know, mirror onto something else or clone something else, that's what they're going to do. So it kind of looks like you're talking to Johnny, but it's really Bobby. And Bobby's talking to David because David's just gotten Barbara online from some third world server. So you may be bouncing from three different countries before the signal comes back to you. So you may be thinking you're talking to somebody in Europe and you're actually talking to somebody who might be, you know, in the Philippines or in China or some other, you know, part of the world and not know it. Let's talk a little bit about the medications that are out there now. Because when I was a kid, the marijuana that was around was not as potent as it is now. And also, anybody who did opiates uh, did not have access to fentanyl. Is it fentanyl or fentanyl? Fentanyl. Fentanyl. No. Okay. Uh, well, with your, is, with your accent, though, Michael, we could probably go either way. Okay. It's kind of <laughs> like potato, potato, tomato, tomato. So, but fentanyl is how I pronounce it. Yeah, tell us about uh, the, the the level of strength of those of both marijuana and fentanyl, or fentanyl um, is today. Well, marijuana, you'll start with that, is, is about twenty five times stronger than it was. You know, when you mentioned the sixties and seventies, twenty five times stronger. So that gives you an idea of marijuana by itself. And, and I think what's scary right now in our country is we're legalizing it or states are legalizing it. And the feds are talking about legalizing it nationally faster than, you know, the average person can say, when can I get it, you know, legally? So that's a big issue. And that's a big issue because people who are not accustomed to the high level of potency of marijuana today put themselves at risk when they consume it. And kids, you know, under the age of 25, developmentally, marijuana has a way of just shutting down the developmental process of the brain for kids in their teens and early 20s. And unfortunately, uh, we don't have long-term studies yet because the consumption of that 
high-intense marijuana has just really accelerated over the last 10 years. But in 10 more years, the experts say it's going to be worse than the tobacco industry was because marijuana is a mood-altering substance. It, it is addictive, but tobacco is addictive. And, you know, it took, I don't know, what, 50 years almost before they started openly and honestly putting warnings on the package of cigarettes telling people could cause cancer and cancer could kill you. So we're kind of a society where, you know, we kind of want to empower everyone to have the freedom of choice, but with that comes a consequence. So on to fentanyl. Fentanyl, my, my uh, understanding of the original story of fentanyl was created at a pharmaceutical level to put into hospitals to help with the high levels of pain uh, and different than morphine. And it was much stronger and it's like 50 times stronger, I believe, than heroin. So when fentanyl started getting uh, manufactured outside of the medical environment, uh, we started seeing this, this opioid overdose that was taking place. But let me go back one more step. Oxycontin, which is the prescription medication that the average person was given for pain, has been around about 20 years. And it was mandated you know, by, well, I think it was President Reagan, that if a client or a customer or patient comes in and says they have a certain level of pain, this is way back in the day, that a doctor was required to give them a prescription for pain medication. So when OxyContin came on to the marketplace, primarily produced by a company called Purdue, we've all seen them in the news, they've been involved with class action lawsuits around the country by attorney generals in about 40 states or more, owned by a family named the Sackler family, and that was their number one product was Oxycontin. And Oxycontin is a significantly uh, uh, deadly uh, medication if taken out of non-prescription, at, at a non-prescription ways. For example, if you're taking 80 milligram of Oxycontin for pain, it's one thing, but if you're taking you know, three times that every day, 240 milligram, your dependency on that's gonna get so high that more than likely you're either gonna have all you want or all you can get, or you're gonna substitute and add other things like heroin. And then fentanyl has grown out of that need because now that the DEA and AMA, American Medical Association, are cracking, cracking down on doctors to slow roll the prescriptions, people are substituting. Now in two, 2016, Michael, I think we've talked about this before, but I think it's important and worth repeating, 264 million, that's 264 million prescriptions of Oxycontin were written in this country. Now, right now in 2020, we have a little over 330 million people. So imagine that's almost a prescription for every household. So at the end of the day, when you think about it, there's a ton of this medication still sitting in medicine cabinets all across this country. Some experts say almost 61% of those prescriptions, of the 264, are still sitting in medicine cabinets. That's why I'm working with a group, Safe Homes Coalition, which is out there educating and helping prevent this pediatric morbidity where kids are getting a hold of these opioids when they go to visit grandma or grandpa, or somebody comes to your house for a party, and while they're in the bathroom, they're rifling through your medicine cabinet. There's more value there today in some cases than there is in your safe, but getting in your safe requires a combination. Getting in your medicine cabinet just requires a visit to the bathroom. So what's happening today is we see so many different people who, in my opinion, are not processing the way they deal with some of their trauma or catastrophic events, they're self-medicating. So when you factor in the fact that there's prescription medication and then there's counterfeit medication out there, and that counterfeit medication, and we'll talk a lot more about that in one of our next segments, is medication that's being manufactured by offshore companies or by people domestically, locally, who are mixing things like fentanyl with heroin, and they're putting it in the context of a Xanax, for example. So you think you're taking a pill that says Xanax on it, and it's actually made with heroin and fentanyl. And what's even worse than those two combinations is a thing called carfentanyl. And carfentanyl is 100 times stronger than heroin, and carfentanyl is the medication that they use to tranquilize elephants, which gives you the idea of how potent and how dangerous that is. But for the drug seeker, anytime they can get higher, anytime they can get further along in their potential exposure to something that gets them higher, they're gonna experiment with it. And what's fascinating, in my opinion, about these stories is when people are busted, and I've heard the stories from the you know, Department of Justice and the law enforcement professionals, they ask and interview these people, why would you sell a medication that would actually kill your consumer? 
And their answer, you know, and I've heard about 20 stories like this is the same. Every time somebody overdoses and dies, and by the way, there's people who overdose and do survive. It's rare, but it happens. And there's also a thing called accidental overdosing where you're taking something, you don't know what it is, and you overdose, and hopefully you can get revived. But the dealer, distributor says, when somebody overdoses and dies, their business goes up. So that's what they use for marketing is when somebody expires. So think about that. I mean, I think of them as my competition, that person who's selling those drugs with no quality assurance. They don't care what's in them. They just do anything they can to get the product on the street, get somebody addicted. So they come back over and over and over again. So we as citizens, we as parents with children, we as kids, the kids out there, they have to be very careful because what you're putting in your body today, it may not just get you high. It may just get you dead. I know that they have a medication now called Narcan that can bring somebody back from an overdose on opioids. And also, I was wondering, you had said before, you gave a statistic about the number of people who die a day versus, you know, who, if, if, I think your quote was that if the site, 200, 300 people a day, if that happened, if a plane crashed, every day with that we would shut down the airports and all the planes and fix it but for some reason the fact that there's that many people dying of overdoses the government is kind of looking the other way i know that our president trump uh, had said before that he was going to do more about uh, the crisis of the opioid crisis but he but nothing as far as i can tell has been done yet what what are some of those statistics and also how little of the uh, fentanyl does it take to kill, kill you? Okay. Well, let me go back to Narcan. Narcan is made with the medication called naloxone. Naloxone is the main medication in Narcan. And Narcan is the name of a product that delivers the naloxone through a nasal spray. There's also a way through, through an injection that also is given. That was the older way. Right now, Narcan is moving out to the communities, hopefully getting in the schools. And that's the one thing that potentially can reverse an opioid overdose. And, you know, more and more people are talking about it. And I hope if you haven't heard about it, you have kids in school or you have grandchildren or you have children who have children, educate yourself to naloxone because it's the only thing really, because by the time you call 911 and you know, the emergency team reacts and responds. That, that window of time is more than enough time for someone who's overdosed on opioids to expire. So it's real important, I mean, to have that, you know, in your medicine cabinet, pretty much like you might have a Band-Aid or some antiseptic to, to deal with a cut because it is, it is scary out there right now. I mean, I carry it in my car and I know that there are drug users out there, okay, heroin consumers who actually will carry Narcan a naloxone on their person and they're with their partner or a group of people and say, if something happens to me, take this out of my pocket, spray it up my nose. Which when you think about the insanity of that, that's almost like talking to an alcoholic who says, when I drink tonight, I can't wait to get in my car and drive into traffic and try to make it home. People do it all the time. We see, we see the DUIs, we see the arrests, we see the, you know, the, the carnage on the freeways, we read about it in the news, and it's just really getting to the point where it's almost stupid to try to think about how you're going to be able to make it home if you're going to be under the influence or be impaired. You know, take an Uber, get a Lyft, call a family member, get a designated driver, get a hotel. Just don't get on the road. I mean, if you want to do things to hurt yourself, I think that's your personal choice. I mean, I would, I frown on it. I'll talk to you about it, but I don't, don't take someone else's life when you're trying to figure out how to get your own butt home that night. The other part of what you're asking is the um, morbidity rate on a daily basis is getting close to north of 200 people a day are dying from uh, an overdose of opioids, whether it's prescription medication, uh, car fentanyl, fentanyl we've talked about, or heroin, or other modalities, you know, people that are actually getting prescribed medication to get off of drugs are taking them uh, more than they should, not as prescribed, and they're trying to get high off of it. And that's happening more and more. It's a little bit, like I said, north of 200 people per day. And that's just the opioid piece. We're not talking about marijuana, methamphetamine, alcohol, or suicide. Okay, that's not even part of that statistic. And that is well over a plane crash a day. And, you know, there is huge conversations going on nationally. The White House has been discussing it, I know. And I think 
they're starting to put some resources out there. The problem is the, the problem is like a runaway train. The solution is like a mailer that's being mailed out through snail mail and we're hoping people will read it. So, but when you think about it, you know, right now it's flu season. I mean, in our community, I don't know, we've had six or seven deaths, I believe in the last month and it's on the news every four hours. But what's happened with overdoses, we're just not talking about it like we used to. We're just not discussing. It's almost be like becoming part of the landscape. But when you meet a family, and I've met a lot of them, and you hear their story about what's happened to their child who was 18, 19, 22, 25, it's just horrible to listen to the story because it's preventable. And there is hope and there's help out there. So I think we have to keep talking about the hope. We have to keep talking about the help. So the last part of your question, I can't believe I remembered all this, Michael. Fentanyl, a tiny grain of fentanyl, the size of the tip of a straight pin, not the head, the tip, almost like a fine granulated Himalayan salt. Imagine that. You can barely even see it, let alone feel it. There's enough in that small dose, if airborne, in a closed area, and there's a couple of people around, it's possible that each and every one of them could potentially overdose from that small amount. That's how potent that medication is, that fentanyl. And if you put car fentanyl with it, which multiplies fentanyl at least 50 more times, it's pretty much assured. We just had a recent overdose here in San Diego where the paramedics responded and there was powder found on the, I'm gonna use the word coffee table, I don't know if the coffee table or the dining room table, and one of the EMTs actually overdosed because it, there was so much in the air that they breathed it in and they had to be revived with Narcan. So when you think about it, you're an emergency medical technician and you're rolling out on a 911 call and you know that if you don't have the proper you know, aspirating mechanism for your breathing, respiratory breathing, I should say, you're not about to run into a situation where people are passed out and start trying to revive them if you think you might die trying to revive them. So we're getting to this, you know, and, and I've never seen, you know, that happen or even talked about, but people are human. And the more these overdoses take place, the more the people who serve the emergency support world are, are trying to be very careful. I mean, they're going to get the apparatuses they need, but when something's airborne like that and you can't see it and you're walking in to try to save somebody who's having a seizure on the floor, you're going to do what you can to try to save their life. But, you know, we're actually seeing that happen. Law enforcement, same thing. They're approaching a car. They're stopping somebody. Somebody's got powder. They think it's cocaine. It's not. It's fentanyl. They can end up overdosing just as easily as the people in the car are. How is this medication getting on the streets? Is it something that the drug companies are making or is it also manufactured in say Mexico or uh, some other, you know, China or something that's getting here? Where does it come from? Fentanyl is something that can be manufactured by buying products on the web. Uh, you can get them on the dark web for even better price and nobody knows you've got them. And I believe I've heard you can spend around $10,000 and you can make, ready for this, north of $15 million in retail sales. And it's not that hard to do. And I'm sure there's YouTube videos out there or mechanisms that show people how to make it. China has been one of the largest manufacturers and producers of uh, fentanyl. And they ship it in uh, to the U.S. through the normal mail through shipping containers, and they've been one of the largest manufacturers of the fentanyl. And now it's moved over to Mexico, and they'll ship it through Canada and other parts of the world as well to get it here, because unfortunately here in the USA, we have one of the largest consumer groups. So we, we, get, we, get, we get and stay very busy with the consumption part of it. And other medications like methamphetamine, uh, the majority of the methamphetamines manufactured in Mexico at the super labs. Cocaine, obviously, still coming from South America. They grow the coca leaves. They process it. But it's now getting real expensive to bring up here. And I want to go back to methamphetamine for just a second. You know, when you think about it, Michael, with the, the things we're talking about, it'd probably be a lot more fun discussing the Super Bowl, you know, and what's happening in the world. But, you know, this kind of thing is so devastating our society right now that, you know, I, I smile when I talk about it because I get a chance to talk about it now. I mean, years ago, nobody would talk about this. Nobody want to hear about it. And, you know, look, some people may be listening going, I, you know, I can't believe how much negativity is coming out of that guy's face. But all I'm doing is recanting 
if you will, the reality of what's happening in our world. So methamphetamine, and by the way, we're putting a lot of great, I think, great information into, you know, one podcast right now. So if, you know, any of this impacts you or you know someone who's got an issue or you're a teacher or you're a faith-based leader or you're a medical expert or a clinician and you've not heard these things before and you know that your, your kids are suffering in your school and in your church and in your temple and your, you know, faith-based arena, make some phone calls. I'm going to give you a number again. It's 619 619- Nine nine three two seven three eight. So methamphetamine, real quick. Ten years ago, in twenty ten, methamphetamine was approximately eleven thousand dollars for a pound, and it was about eight or nine percent pure methamphetamine. The other ninety ninety one percent was other things, from anywhere from you know powdered this or powdered that or some sort of a you know acetone that was used to mix it up together like they used to do with crack. Here we are, and and so it was eleven thousand dollars a pound, and it was eight to nine percent pure. Here we are in 2020, okay? That same pound of methamphetamine is around $1,100. That's 10 times less money. And that sounds dramatic. How is it possible that something is becoming less expensive than it used to be? But here's what's even worse. The average $1,100 pound of methamphetamine that's coming out of Mexico, it's being manufactured or assembled there, it's shipped here in the US, is over 90% pure over 90% pure. So if you did a gram of methamphetamine today compared to 10 years ago, it would be 10 times less money and it would be 10 times stronger. That is the kind of landscape, Michael, that we're into right now. That's what's going on with narcotics is they're, they're able to be made at a much faster rate and they're able to be more potent because the manufacturer and the distributors want to create an addicted consumer. And when kids pick up the stuff on the dark web and start making it in their garage, you may have something that's 80 or 90% pure, but you have no idea what else has been put into it that can have other long-term damage on your body, your mind, and your soul. Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about the magic mushrooms and ketamine, which is now being studied as possible treatments for mental illnesses. Do you know anything about that or the uh, availability of mushrooms and ketamine? Well, mushrooms, from what I'm hearing, and um, LSD is back in middle school. I mean, not back, but it's actually coming to middle school right now. They're targeting that younger market. And I've heard locally that that's happening here. I'm sure it's happening in other communities as well. Ketamine uh, is a medication that, you know, you can, I think, get over the counter as well. So it's not hard to get. And I know just talking to somebody last week that was going through withdrawals for something and they were using ketamine uh, as a way to kind of, you know, process some of the secondary withdrawals they were going through because they didn't want to go through a traditional rehab because they just were scared about, you know, getting their, their number pulled again. So those are those are mechanisms that people are using also to get high. Ketamine is a tool. Some treatment providers are using it. Some doctors who specialize in addiction medicine think it's a great tool as well. Some people think marijuana is a great tool. Look, ketamine, marijuana compared to Oxycontin or Suboxone or Methadone, which are very strong, you know, but also great tools with what's called medication-assisted treatment are also referred to as harm reduction. So there are different ways to deal with addiction today kind of like what antabuse used to be given to people who drink, you know, uh, to, so when you drank, you got sick and threw up. But uh, there's also another medication called Vivitrol, which is an opioid blocker and also works with people who have issues with alcohol. It, uh, it doesn't allow the uh, mood altering uh, aspects of the medication to impact you. It's basically blocked, which prevents you from getting high from what you're doing. And also, you know, will participate with, you know, over time reducing the craving which is nice as well, because when you're, when you're craving something or you're going through, you know, the DTs or detoxing or you're shaking and sweating and can't sleep and throwing up, you're not going to be very um, productive when it comes to recovery or anything else in your life, job, life, family, work, school, whatever it might be. So there are medications out there that can help with withdrawal, help with transition and transformation and help stabilize people. So one size does not fit all when it comes to treatment. And I think, you know, one of the things hopefully we'll talk about next time is what 
treatment options look like, uh, what recovery looks like, why it's important to you know, look into and ask for help, and what it is that we can do as a society and a community to try to help the people we care about uh, better understand that there is hope and help and there are options and opportunities out there if you really want to seek it. Has alcohol consumption changed? Alcohol is still a big contributing factor to people that are mood altering. And if I'm not mistaken, there are people that will say that alcohol takes more lives than illicit drugs do, just depending upon how they're counting it. But most people are not just drinking. They're taking something to wake up, taking something to go to sleep on. So depending upon you know, what happens or the outcome of somebody who abuses uh, and how that information is being gathered. Right now, the medical examiners the MEs are the ones gathering most of the data across the country because people don't even make it to the emergency departments anymore. If they're overdosing, they go right from wherever they overdosed right to the morgue. And when you think about that, that's a huge step that's been kind of diminished a little bit, but there's still a lot of people going to the emergency departments that are overdosing as well. But alcohol, and I'm glad you asked that because sometimes we forget about it, is a huge huge contributor. Most people that are on, uh, you know, arrested for impaired driving or have accidents, it's usually alcohol, which is the main piece of what they're consuming. You know, it's been legal forever and kids enjoy it. It's everywhere and it's easy to get a hold of. And at the end of the day, again, it's legal. So when people are drinking it and have too much, you know, they get past the part of being impaired and they're, you know, they just don't know exactly what they can and can't do and they'll cross the line and it happens all the time. We just had a local kid here in our community who was at a big party and he went back to the dorm and somehow maybe he was trying to throw up or he just had a seizure or he was just drunk and he fell off his bunk and died. I mean, did alcohol cause that? I don't know, but I'm sure it contributed to his inability to sense, you know, what was going on. And if he was, you know, unconscious and throwing up and choking and his body was moving around, but he fell off the bunk and died. I mean, there's a young life that's over forever and a family that's impacted forever and a whole college campus that's not going to forget that situation, you know, too quickly. Yeah, I know that um, hazing in colleges is pretty bad. And there have been several cases of students dying from alcohol poisoning, just having to, you know, during the hazing process, drink so much liquor that they actually poison themselves. And uh, there's, Really, how do you fight something like that when it's out of your control as a parent? You know, you send your child to college thinking they're going to get an education and maybe pledge for a fraternity, but you don't think about, well, are they going to be doing alcohol or drugs? And is that going to be part of the, the pledging process? You know, it, as a parent myself, when I sent my kids, um, I didn't, you know, send them, they decided to go. And I accepted the fact they want, I mean, I wanted my kids to go to school locally, but they both chose and opted to go to schools outside of the San Diego area. And, you know, at the point when a kid's at that age, at 18, you, you, you probably have to, I don't know if the words hope, believe, but know that they're at a point where whatever decision-making tools they have, if they haven't developed at least a good understanding of what those tools look like, there's not a whole lot you're going to be able to do except to be there and understand when a situation arises to try to be a good listener. I mean, I, as a crisis coach and, and a family navigator, I'm dealing with families all the time with kids as young as, you know, 12 uh, up to kids in their 50s that families are still concerned about. And they're still acting out in appropriate ways. And some people just seem to lose their compass and don't know how to make the right decisions. But to your, your specific question about college, look, it's supposed to be an exciting time. It is an exciting time. Your first time away from home for some kids, and there's a lot of peer pressure out there. So what I tell parents is, look, whenever you can, listen. And you don't even have to say to the kid, hey, I'm listening. Talk to me. Just listen. Just for lack of better words, just be quiet. And, and see what comes out of their mouth. And if they're used to you just talking and them listening, they're not gonna know, you, know how to start a conversation because they're gonna wait for you to start making those accusations. And, you know, I hear you're this, what's going on? You haven't talked to us in three days. How's your grade going? You know, what's going on with you know, the evening? How's that going with your friends? You know, what's happened with that job? You know, we, we read from you know, your note, da da da, your email, you've lost your job. So, it's really complicated, but it can be simple. And the simple part for me is just to tell parents you need to listen. And when you hear something that scares you, 
tell your kid, you know, I love you. I'm your dad. And what I'm hearing from you really scares me. Is there anything I can do to help? Is there anything I can do to support you? What can I do as your dad to help you with what's going on that might be, you know, thinking of me as a resource? Don't think of me as your dad or your parent, but I am. But as a resource, maybe there's something I can help you with or just know that I'm willing when you're ready. If you want, I'm here for you. And that's the best advice I can give a parent. Yeah, that's uh, to have a frank conversation with with your child is a necessity these days. I know that you hear about having the sex talk with your with your child, but there should also be uh, alcohol abuse and drug abuse talk as well. Uh, I don't know if they get that in school or not. If you know there are sex education classes for sex in school, but I don't know about if there is a drug and alcohol, you know. Uh, whatever in, in schools as well. Do, do you know if there is? Well, th there's a specific period of time during the school year at different grade levels and different age groups where schools are now mandated to have what I would call a kind of a institutionalized information sharing opportunity uh, where they gather the kids together in a you know big assembly and they show a video or they bring in a speaker and they give a talk and that, you know, it's kind of more for a compliance uh, you know, than it is anything else. It's interesting that I know for a fact here in our community, a big event just took place a few weeks ago and they had a thousand kids respond to the survey, which was unbelievable, and teachers. And it was, I think they had, I want to say they had almost 1,800, you know, people there. So that's a huge response. And a lot of the response from the teachers were, this is not my expertise. I don't understand all this stuff. And they might or they may not. And then a lot of the kids were just like going, you know, this was boring. I've heard this before. You know, this won't happen to me. You know, and it's the traditional kind of um, denial or response to it. So what do you do to keep the message in front of kids? You just make it as important as you would, you know, getting good grades, having solid relationships. But I think it goes back even a little bit further, Michael. Kids kids, people, look, we get sad, we get happy, you know, we have success, we have failure, we have, you know, in-betweens, we have unknowns, we have catastrophic events, loss of loved ones, we, you know, look, post-traumatic stress disorder can come from watching, you know, what's going on in the news today, I mean, what's going on in DC today, if it stresses anybody, if you're focused on it, and, you know, being married can be stressful, you know, uh, trying to get good grades can be stressful, and I think we're not having enough conversations about, you know, how do we process what we're feeling? You know, how do we talk about our sadness, our joy, our happiness? How do we do that? You know, a lot of us are kind of stuck on our phones and talking on social media and glued to the television or glued to our iPad or looking at ways to kind of escape quietly. So until we understand that what we're doing might be contributing to what we're doing in potentially a non-positive way, and I wanna say that in a positive way, we're gonna keep doing what we've always done. And I, and I like that phrase uh, I've used a lot, you do what you've always done, you're gonna get what you've always got. So until we find ways to talk about our feelings, until we talk about to someone we care about and trust, hey, you know, I have not been sleeping well. I'm not feeling good. And there's lots of professionals out there, but sometimes people even think about going to talk to a professional is a, is a kind of a, a check off that there's something wrong with me. That's the stigma part of it. So encouraging people, look, you break a leg. There's no question. You're going right to the ER. You're going to have the emergency room check you out. You know, you, you broke a tooth and you can't even breathe in and out without it hurting. You're going to go right to the dentist. You get arrested. You know, you're not going to go on YouTube. You're going to call an attorney. You know what I mean? You fall off the roof. You break your back. You're not going to sit and debate the fact you don't want to go get help because you don't want to get hooked on pain medication. You're going to go get help. That's the way it works. So listening, and I think I've probably used that word as much as I have any other word and we've talked about today is so critical and being present when you listen as a family member, as a significant other, as a sibling, young or older, doesn't matter where it comes from. Because you can, you can watch all the YouTube you want, you can watch all the TV you want, you can watch all the you know, internet information, highway, all you want. But until you start talking to somebody 
and they respond to what you're saying and they ask questions to get clarity and you're willing to share with them honestly, it's going to really be hard to process just about anything. And, you know, I believe that answers can come from many different places. It doesn't have to just be a parent or, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or a faith-based leader. It could be your best friend. It could be someone, you know, and sometimes it could just be a stranger at a coffee shop. You never know. Okay. To, to close this out for today, why don't you go ahead and give your uh, contact information again, and also maybe uh, a little bit about what uh, our listeners can expect for this podcast in the future. Okay. Well, once again, uh, my name is Scott H. Silverman, and you're listening to Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour with my colleague, Michael Moore. Our job, we see it, is to get information to you that you want to know about when it comes to addiction, substance abuse, behavioral health, co-occurring issues, depression, anxiety, and anything that might surround itself around those topics. And when you get an opportunity, if you have a question and you want to get some, you know, advanced help and support, please call me, Scott H. Silverman at 619-993-2738. Your crisis coach, your family navigator, and hopefully a new friend to your family.